This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Yvain by Chrétien de Troyes, translated by W. W. Comfort. Section 4 Mounted on great Spanish steeds, they all go to meet the King of Britain, saluting King Arthur first with great courtesy, and then all his company. Welcome, they say, to this company so full of honorable men. Blessed be he who brings them hither and presents us with such fair guests. At the king's arrival the town resounds with the joyous welcome which they give. Silken stuffs are taken out and hung aloft as decorations, and they spread tapestries to walk upon and drape the streets with them while they wait for the king's approach. And they make still another preparation in covering the streets with awnings against the hot rays of the sun. Bells, horns, and trumpets cause the town to ring so that God's thunder could not have been heard. The maidens dance before him. Flutes and pipes are played. Kettle drums, drums, and cymbals are beaten. On their part, the nimble youths leap, and all strive to show their delight. With such evidence of their joy, they welcome the king fittingly. And the lady came forth, dressed in imperial garb a robe of fresh ermine and upon her head she wore a diadem all ornamented with rubies. No cloud was there upon her face, but it was so gay and full of joy that she was more beautiful, I think, than any goddess. Around her the crowd pressed close, as they cried with one accord, Welcome to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords! The king could not reply to all before he saw the lady coming towards him to hold his stirrup. However, he would not wait for this, but hastened to dismount himself as soon as he caught sight of her. Then she salutes him with these words, Welcome a hundred thousand times to the king, my lord, and blessed be his nephew, my lord Gawain. The king replies, I wish all happiness and good luck to your fair body and your face, lovely creature. Then, clasping her about the waist, the king embraced her gaily and heartily, as she did him, throwing her arms about him. I will say no more of how gladly she welcomed them, but no one ever heard of any people who were so honorably received and served. I might tell you much of the joy, should I not be wasting words, but I wish to make brief mention of an acquaintance which was made in private between the moon and the sun. Do you know of whom I mean to speak? He who is lord of the knights, and who is renowned above them all, ought surely to be called the sun. I refer, of course, to my lord Gawain, for chivalry is enhanced by him, just as when the morning sun sheds its rays abroad, and lights all places where it shines. And I call her the moon, who could not be otherwise because of her sense and courtesy. However, I call her so not only because of her good repute, but because her name is, in fact, Lunette. The damsel's name was Lunette, and she was a charming brunette, prudent, clever, and polite. As her acquaintance grows with my lord Gawain, he values her highly, and gives her his love as to his sweetheart, because she had saved from death his companion and friend. He places himself freely at her service. On her part, she describes and relates to him with what difficulty she persuaded her mistress to take my lord Yvain as her husband, and how she protected him from the hands of those who were seeking him, how he was in their midst, but they did not see him. 
My lord Gawain laughed aloud at this story of hers, and then he said, Mademoiselle, when you need me and when you don't, such as I am, I place myself at your disposal. Never throw me off for someone else when you think you can improve your lot. I am yours, and do you be from now on my demoiselle. I thank you kindly, sire, she said. While the acquaintance of these two was ripening thus, the others, too, were engaged in flirting. For there were perhaps ninety ladies there, each of whom was fair and charming, noble and polite, virtuous and prudent, and a lady of exalted birth, so the men could agreeably employ themselves in caressing and kissing them, and in talking to them, and in gazing at them while they were seated by their side. That much satisfaction they had at least. My lord Yvain is in high feather because the king is lodged with him, and the lady bestows such attention upon them all, as individuals and collectively, that some foolish person might suppose that the charming attentions which she showed them were dictated by love. But such persons may properly be rated as fools for thinking that a lady is in love with them just because she is courteous and speaks to some unfortunate fellow and makes him happy and caresses him. A fool is made happy by fair words and is very easily taken in. That entire week they spent in gaiety, Forest and stream offered plenty of sport for anyone who desired it, and whoever wished to see the land which had come into the hands of my lord Yvain, with the lady whom he had married, could go to enjoy himself at one of the castles, which stood within a radius of two, three, or four leagues. When the king had stayed as long as he chose, he made ready to depart, but during the week they had all begged urgently, and with all the insistence at their command, that they might take away my lord Yvain with them. "'What, will you be one of those?' said my lord Gawain to him, who degenerate after marriage. Cursed be he by St. Mary, who marries and then degenerates. Whoever has a fair lady as his mistress or his wife should be the better for it, and is not right that her affection should be bestowed on him after his worth and reputation are gone.' "'Surely you, too, would have cause to regret her love if you grew soft for a woman quickly withdraws her love, and rightly so, and despises him who degenerates in any way when he has become lord of the realm. Now ought your fame to be increased. Slip off the bridle and halter, and come to the tournament with me, that no one may say that you are jealous. Now you must no longer hesitate to frequent the lists, to share in the onslaught, and to contend with force, whatever effort it may cost. Inaction produces indifference. But really, you must come, for I shall be in your company. Have a care that our comradeship shall not fail through any fault of yours, fair companion. For my part, you may count on me. It is strange how a man sets store by the life of ease, which has no end. Pleasures grow sweeter through postponement, and a little pleasure, when delayed, is much sweeter to the taste than great pleasure enjoyed at once. The sweets of a love which develops late are like a fire in a green bush, for the longer one delays in lighting it, the greater will be the heat it yields, and the longer will its force endure. One may easily fall into habits which it is very difficult to shake off, for when one desires to do so, he finds he has lost the power. Don't misunderstand my words, my friend. If I had such a fair mistress as you have, I call God and his saints to witness, I should leave her most reluctantly. Indeed, I should doubtless be infatuated. 
but a man may give another counsel which he would not take himself, just as the preachers, who are deceitful rascals, and preach and proclaim the right, but who do not follow it themselves. My lord Gawain spoke at such length and so urgently that he promised him that he would go, but he said that he must consult his lady and ask for her consent. Whether it be a foolish or a prudent thing to do, he will not fail to ask her leave to return to Britain. Then he took counsel with his wife, who had no inkling of the permission he desired, as he addressed her with these words. My beloved lady, my heart and soul, my treasure, joy, and happiness, grant me now a favor which will redound to your honor and to mine. The lady at once gives her consent, not knowing what his desire is, and says, Fair lord, you may command me your pleasure, whatever it be. Then my lord Yvain at once asks her for permission to escort the king and to attend at tournaments, that no one may reproach his indolence. And she replies, I grant you leave until a certain date, but be sure that my love will change to hate if you stay beyond the term that I shall fix. Remember that I shall keep my word. If you break your word, I will keep mine. If you wish to possess my love, and if you have any regard for me, remember to come back again at the latest, a year from the present date, a week after St. John's Day, for today is the eighth day since that feast. You will be checkmated of my love if you are not restored to me on that day. My lord Yvain weeps and sighs so bitterly that he can hardly find words to say. My lady, this date is indeed a long way off. If I could be a dove, whenever the fancy came to me, I should often rejoin you here. And I pray God that in his pleasure he may not detain me so long away. But sometimes a man intends speedily to return, who knows not what the future has in store for him, and I know not what will be my fate. Perhaps some urgency of sickness or imprisonment may keep me back. You are unjust in not making an exception at least of actual hindrance. My lord, says she, I will make that exception, and yet I dare to promise you that, if God deliver you from death, no hindrance will stand in your way so long as you remember me. So put on your finger now this ring of mine, which I lend to you, and I will tell you all about the stone. No true and loyal lover can be imprisoned or lose any blood, nor can any harm befall him, provided he carry it and hold it dear and keep his sweetheart in mind. You will become as hard as iron, and it will serve you as shield and hauberk. I have never before been willing to lend or entrust it to any knight, but to you I give it, because of my affection for you. Now my lord Yvain is free to go, but he weeps bitterly on taking leave. The king, however, would not tarry longer for anything that might be said. Rather was he anxious to have the palfreys brought, all equipped and bridled. They acceded at once to his desire, bringing the palfreys forth, so that it remained only to mount. I do not know whether I ought to tell you how my lord Yvain took his leave, and of the kisses bestowed on him, mingled with tears and steeped in sweetness. And what shall I tell you about the king? How the lady escorts him, accompanied by her damsels and seneschal. All this would require too much time. When he sees the lady's tears, the king implores her to come no farther, but to return to her abode. He begged her with such urgency that, heavy at heart, she turned about 
followed by her company. My lord Yvain is so distressed to leave his lady that his heart remains behind. The king may take his body off, but he cannot lead his heart away. She who stays behind clings so tightly to his heart that the king has not the power to take it away with him. When the body is left without the heart, it cannot possibly live on, for such a marvel was never seen as the body alive without the heart. Yet this marvel now came about, for he kept his body without the heart, which was wont to be enclosed in it, but which would not follow the body now. The heart has a good abiding place, while the body, hoping for a safe return to its heart, in strange fashion takes a new heart of hope, which is so often deceitful and treacherous. He will never know in advance, I think, the hour when this hope will play him false. For if he overstays by single day the term which he has agreed upon, it will be hard for him to gain again his lady's pardon and goodwill. Yet I think he will overstay the term, for my lord Gawain will not allow him to part from him, as together they go to joust wherever tournaments are held. And as the year passes by, my lord Yvain has such success that my lord Gawain strove to honour him, and caused him to delay so long that all the first year slipped by, and it came to the middle of August of the ensuing year, when the king held court at Chester, whither they had returned the day before from a tournament, where my lord Yvain had been, and where he had won the glory. And the story tells how the two companions were unwilling to lodge in the town, but had their tents set up outside the city, and held court there. For they never went to the royal court, but the king came rather to join in theirs, for they had the best knights and the greatest number in their company. Now King Arthur was seated in their midst, when Yvain suddenly had a thought, which surprised him more than any that had occurred to him since he had taken leave of his lady. For he realized that he had broken his word, and that the limit of his leave was already exceeded. He could hardly keep back his tears, but he succeeded in doing so from shame. He was still deep in thought when he saw a damsel approaching rapidly upon a black palfrey with white forefeet. As she got down before the tent, no one helped her to dismount, and no one went to take her horse. As soon as she made out the king, she let her mantle fall, and thus displayed she entered the tent and came before the king, announcing that her mistress sent greetings to the king, and to my lord Gawain and all the other knights, except Yvain, that disloyal traitor, liar, hypocrite, who had deserted her deceitfully. She has seen clearly the treachery of him who pretended he was a faithful lover, while he was a false and treacherous thief. This thief has traduced my lady, who was all unprepared for any evil, and to whom it never occurred that he would steal her heart away. Those who love truly do not steal hearts away. There are, however, some men, by whom these former are called thieves, who themselves go about deceitfully making love, but in whom there is no real knowledge of the matter. The lover takes his lady's heart, of course, but he does not run away with it. Rather does he treasure it against those thieves who, in the guise of honourable men, would steal it from him. But those are deceitful and treacherous thieves, who vie with one another in stealing hearts, for which they care nothing. The true lover, wherever he may go, holds the heart dear, and brings it back again. But a vein has caused my lady's death, for she supposed that he would guard her heart for her, and would bring it back again before the year elapsed. 
Yvain, thou wast of short memory when thou couldst not remember to return to thy mistress within a year. She gave thee thy liberty until St. John's Day, and thou settest so little store by her that never since has a thought of her crossed thy mind. My lady has marked every day in her chamber as the seasons passed. For when one is in love, one is ill at ease and cannot get any restful sleep, but all night long must needs count and reckon up the days as they come and go. Dost thou know how lovers spend their time? They keep count of the time and the season. Her complaint is not presented prematurely or without cause, and I am not accusing him in any way, but I simply say that we have been betrayed by him who married my lady. Yvain, my mistress has no further care for thee, but sends thee word by me never to come back to her, and no longer to keep her ring. She bids thee send it back to her by me, whom thou seest present here. Surrender it now, as thou art bound to do. Senseless and deprived of speech, Yvain is unable to reply, and the damsel steps forth and takes the ring from his finger, commending to God the king and all the others, except him, whom she leaves in deep distress. And his sorrow grows on him. He feels oppressed by what he hears, and is tormented by what he sees. He would rather be banished alone in some wild land, where no one would know where to seek for him, and where no man or woman would know of his whereabouts, any more than if he were in some deep abyss. He hates nothing so much as he hates himself, nor does he know to whom to go for comfort in the death he has brought upon himself. But he would rather go insane than not take vengeance upon himself, deprived, as he is, of joy through his own fault. He rises from his place among the knights, fearing he will lose his mind if he stays longer in their midst. On their part, they pay no heed to him, but let him take his departure alone. They know well enough that he cares nothing for their talk or their society. And he goes away until he is far from the tents and pavilions. Then such a storm broke loose in his brain that he loses his senses. He tears his flesh and, stripping off his clothes, he flees across the meadows and fields, leaving his men quite at a loss and wondering what has become of him. They go in search of him through all the country around, in the lodgings of the knights, by the hedgerows, and in the gardens, but they seek him where he is not to be found. Still fleeing, he rapidly pursued his way, until he met close by a park a lad who had in his hand a bow and five barbed arrows, which were very sharp and broad. He had sense enough to go and take the bow and arrows which he held. However, he had no recollection of anything that he had done. He lies in wait for the beasts in the wood, killing them, and then eating the venison raw. Thus he dwelt in the forest like a madman or a savage, until he came upon a little, low-lying house belonging to a hermit, who was at work clearing his ground. When he saw him coming with nothing on, he could easily perceive that he was not in his right mind, and such was the case, as the hermit very well knew. So, in fear, he shut himself up in his little house, and taking some bread and fresh water, he charitably set it outside the house on a narrow window ledge. And thither the other comes, hungry for the bread which he takes and eats. I do not believe that he ever before had tasted such hard and bitter bread. The measure of barley kneaded with the straw, of which the bread, sourer than yeast, was made, 
had not cost more than five sous, and the bread was musty and dry as bark. But hunger torments and whets his appetite, so that the bread tasted to him like sauce. For hunger is itself a well-mixed and concocted sauce for any food. My lord Yvain soon ate the hermit's bread, which tasted good to him, and drank the cool water from the jug. When he had eaten, he betook himself again to the woods in search of stags and does. And when he sees him going away, the good man beneath his roof prays God to defend him and guard him lest he ever pass that way again. But there is no creature, with howsoever little sense, that will not gladly return to a place where he is kindly treated. So not a day passed while he was in this mad fit that he did not bring to his door some wild game. Such was the life he led, and the good man took it upon himself to remove the skin and set a good quantity of the venison to cook, and the bread and the water in the jug were always standing on the window-ledge for the madman to make a meal. Thus he had something to eat and drink, venison without salt or pepper, and good cool water from the spring. And the good man exerted himself to sell the hide, and buy bread made of barley or oats or of some other grain. So, after that, Yvain had a plentiful supply of bread and venison, which sufficed him for a long time, until one day he was found asleep in the forest by two damsels and their mistress, in whose service they were. When they saw the naked man, one of the three ran and dismounted and examined him closely, before she saw anything about him which would serve to identify him. If he had only been richly attired, as he had been many a time, and if she could have seen him then, she would have known him quickly enough. But she was slow to recognize him, and continued to look at him, until at last she noticed a scar which he had on his face, and she recollected that my lord Yvain's face was scarred in this same way. She was sure of it, for she had often seen it. Because of the scar she saw that it was he beyond any doubt, but she marvelled greatly how it came about that she found him thus poor and stripped. Often she crosses herself in amazement, but she does not touch him or wake him up. Rather does she mount her horse again, and going back to the others, tells them tearfully of her adventure. I do not know if I ought to delay to tell you of the grief she showed, but thus she spoke, weeping to her mistress. My lady, I have found a vein, who has proved himself to be the best knight in the world, and the most virtuous. I cannot imagine what sin has reduced the gentleman to such a plight. I think he must have had some misfortune which causes him thus to demean himself, for one may lose his wits through grief, and any one can see he is not in his right mind, for it would surely never be like him to conduct himself thus indecently, unless he had lost his mind. Would that God had restored him to the best sense he ever had, and would that he might then consent to render assistance to your cause. For Count Allier, who is at war with you, has made upon you a fierce attack. I should see the strife between you two quickly settled in your favor, if God favored your fortune so that he should return to his senses, and undertake to aid you in this stress. To this the lady made reply, Take care now, for surely, if he does not escape, with God's help I think we can clear his head of all the madness and insanity. But we must be on our way at once for I recall a certain ointment with which Morgan the Wise presented me, saying there was no delirium of the head which it would not cure. 
Thereupon they go off at once towards the town, which was hard by, for it was not any more than half a league of the kind they have in that country, and, as compared with ours, two of their leagues makes one, and four make two. And he remains sleeping all alone, while the lady goes to fetch the ointment. The lady opens a case of hers, and, taking out a box, gives it to the damsel, and charges her not to be too prodigal in its use. She should rub only his temples with it, for there is no use of applying it elsewhere. She should anoint only his temples with it, and the remainder she should carefully keep, for there is nothing the matter with him except in his brain. She sends him also a robe of spotted fur, a coat, and a mantle of scarlet silk. The damsel takes them, and leads in her right hand an excellent palfrey, and she added to these of her own store a shirt, some soft hose, and some new drawers of proper cut. With all these things she quickly set out, and found him still asleep where she had left him. After putting her horse in an enclosure where she tied him fast, she came with the clothes and the ointment to the place where he was asleep. Then she made so bold as to approach the madman, so that she could touch and handle him. Then taking the ointment, she rubbed him with it until none remained in the box, being so solicitous for his recovery that she proceeded to anoint him all over with it. And she used it so freely that she heeded not the warning of her mistress, nor indeed did she remember it. She put more on than was needed, but in her opinion it was well employed. She rubbed his temples and forehead and his whole body down to the ankles. She rubbed his temples and his whole body so much there in the hot sunshine that the madness and the depressing gloom passed completely out of his brain. But she was foolish to anoint his body, for of that there was no need. If she had had five measures of it, she would doubtless have done the same thing. She carries off the box and takes hidden refuge by her horse, but she leaves the robe behind, wishing that, if God calls him back to life, he may see it all laid out, and may take it and put it on. She posts herself behind an oak tree until he has slept enough, and was cured and quite restored, having regained his wits and memory. Then he sees that he is as naked as ivory, and feels much ashamed. But he would have been yet more ashamed had he known what had happened. As it is, he knows nothing but that he is naked. He sees the new robe lying before him, and marvels greatly how and by what adventure it had come there. But he is ashamed and concerned, because of his nakedness, and says that he is dead and utterly undone, if any one has come upon him there and recognized him. Meanwhile he clothes himself and looks out into the forest to see if any one was approaching. He tries to stand up and support himself, but cannot summon the strength to walk away, for his sickness has so affected him that he can scarcely stand upon his feet. Thereupon the damsel resolves to wait no longer, but, mounting, she passed close by him, as if unaware of his presence. Quite indifferent as to whence might come the help, which he needed so much to lead him away to some lodging place, where he might recruit his strength, he calls out to her with all his might. And the damsel, for her part, looks about her as if not knowing what the trouble is. Confused, she goes hither and thither, not wishing to go straight up to him. Then he begins to call again, Damsel, come this way, here and the damsel guided toward him her soft-stepping palfrey. By this ruse she made him think that she knew nothing of him, and had never seen him before. In doing so, she was wise and courteous. When she had come before him, she said, 
Sir Knight, what do you desire that you call me so insistently? Ah, said he, prudent damsel, I have found myself in this wood by some mishap, I know not what. For God's sake and your belief in him, I pray you to lend me, taking my word as pledge, or else to give me outright, that palfrey you are leading in your hand. Gladly, sire, but you must accompany me whither I am going. Which way, says he, to a town that stands nearby, beyond the forest. Tell me, damsel, if you stand in need of me. Yes, she says, I do, but I think you are not very well. For the next two weeks at least you ought to rest. Take this horse, which I hold in my right hand, and we shall go to our lodging place. And he, who had no other desire, takes it and mounts, and they proceed until they come to a bridge over a swift and turbulent stream. And the damsel throws into the water the empty box she is carrying, thinking to excuse herself to her mistress for her ointment, by saying she was so unlucky as to let the box fall into the water, for, when her palfrey stumbled under her, the box slipped from her grasp, and she came near falling in too, which would have been still worse luck. It is her intention to invent this story when she comes into her mistress's presence. Together they held their way until they came to the town, where the lady detained my lord Yvain, and asked her damsel in private for her box and ointment. And the damsel repeated to her the lie, as she had invented it, not daring to tell her the truth. Then the lady was greatly enraged, and said, This is certainly a very serious loss, and I am sure and certain that the box will never be found again. But, since it has happened so, there is nothing more to be done about it. One often desires a blessing which turns out to be a curse. Thus I, who looked for a blessing and joy from this night, have lost the dearest and most precious of my possessions. However, I beg you to serve him in all respects. Ah, lady, how wisely now you speak, for it would be too bad to convert one misfortune into two. End of section four.